This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Happy Labor Day, stackers. And while we're not here because we're celebrating Labor Day and the fact that we had eight weeks of hard work that came to an end, we are leaving you with a few greatest hits episode this week of the last 10 years of shows. We're going to play three of them. You know who was working this weekend? The men and women serving our country. So I'd like to do a quick shout out to the troops before we go. On behalf of the men and women making podcasts here in Mom's Basement and the men and women at Navy Federal Credit Union, big shout out to our troops. Let's go stack some Benjamin, shall we? Pre-recorded from Joe's mom's basement, welcome to another Rewind episode of The Stacking Benjamin Show. Hey everyone, I'm Griffin the Intern, but on this Labor Day, I'm Fintern. Happy Labor Day, stackers. I'm so glad that we have a national holiday that functions specifically to celebrate all the hard work I do down here in the basement. I fill up the coffee, vacuum the shag carpet, and sometimes I even get to throw in a few ideas for the show. Now that I think about it, how come those ideas never end up on the show? Someday, maybe. Just for a look behind the curtain, Joe, OG, and Doug just get to sit around and watch me work all day because they're tired from talking on the mic the last eight weeks. Sounds tough, guys. Like pouring concrete, I'm sure. You know what? With all the work I do, I might as well be running this show. So for this Labor Day, to celebrate me and all the hardworking men and women out there, I'm helping you make your money work harder for you. Joe's co-writer of the book Stacked, Emily Guy Birkin, kicks off our Rewind Week of the greatest hits talking about retirement mythbusters and tips to help you stack more Benjamins. This episode originally aired back in 2015, so enjoy this Rewind to a great show, but ignore any giveaways or mentions of current events. Enjoy, Fintern out. Hey, Ronnie, let's go, pal. Live from Joe's parents' basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. On today's wild and crazy Retirement Week episode, author of Choose Your Retirement, Emily Guy Birkin. News on Smart Beta, my trivia segment, your letters, and more. Here they are, two guys who should have retired this podcast ages ago, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. I was listening to another podcast today, and the guy sold his business. And the reason he sold it was because he had his number. And so I would love to retire. That's all we're waiting for is our number. Waiting for the number. 
Well, the good news is you show up and say, we'll buy you out. Here's the number. Your number came up on DraftKings, but an employee of DraftKings stole it from you. God, that just so chaps my rear end. Hey, everybody. I'm Joseph. That I was talking about with that. <laughs> oh, man. I am Joseph. I'll see how I average Joe Money on Twitter. And that other voice you heard, a creepy voice across the card table from me is OG. That is spooky, though. Dude, so what is up with that? DraftKings stealing your money. <laughs> well, it's not DraftKings. I guess it was FanDuel, right? Like, uh, it was DraftKings employees were winning on FanDuel. Oh, that's a good deal. <laughs> yeah. I was reading the article, or someone was reading it to me, I guess. And, yeah, because you're not a big reader. Not a big reader. I do not like that. I like being told what my news is. Turn on NBC, and they just tell me what happened and how I should feel about it. <laughs> I'm a robot. I have no personal opinions in this matter whatsoever. But anyway, uh, apparently over the last year, half a percent of all of the payouts on FanDuel have gone to DraftKings employees. And they've paid out something like $2 billion. That's a remarkably large percentage. 10 mil. Yeah. I have yet to figure out how that would help them because it's still a quasi-game of chance, but I don't know. I don't know. Unless they're, you know, manipulating some numbers in the back room, right? But we are not... Who doesn't do that? Well, we're doing it with this episode, dude, because we got Emily Guy Birkin. We had to manipulate a lot of stuff to get her on the show. She wrote the book, Choose Your Retirement. It's like, you like those choose your own adventure books when you were a kid? When I was a child, yes. Absolutely. Well, she's going to teach I people. Like a I walk like a child. <laughs> you really do. And you know, she is bringing a top five today to the show that doesn't involve you having to do anything. How great is that? That's my kind of podcast. <laughs> top five retirement planning myths. Hey, but before we get that, something that's not a myth, it is the truth. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Well, you know what I think about Navy Federal? I think about the veterans that have done so much for our country. And I also think about some of our active service members. want to say a special shout out to Uh, My nephews, Colin and Nathan, who are both in the Navy. Colin is stationed outside Seattle, Washington on a submarine. And my nephew, Nathan, is in South Africa as an air traffic controller. And in Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants you also to celebrate members, many of whom go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. It's all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their family are eligible for Navy Federal membership. They offer 24-7 help from their U.S.-based member service. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. Hey, man, we got a great episode, so we got to move. Let's do this. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. 
Our first headline today, OG, is about this cool, sexy thing called Smart Beta. This is from Investment News, the leading information source for financial advisors, according to them, right? It sounds very self-congratulatory. A little pat on the back. Yes. Self-professed expert. In- we are the leading source of information for small farm animals. We should put that as our tagline. This by Jeff Benjamin. Reports find understanding remains scanty of smart beta funds. Imagine that. And strategies used by advisors don't always match goals. It says smart beta continues to gain traction among financial advisors. But two reports this week show that the overall universe of strategies that tweak traditional market capitalization weighted indexing. Wow, that's a mouthful. Is becoming a larger part of investment portfolios and making particular inroads with independent financial advisors. First of all, let's start with this. What the heck is smart beta, OG? What is this thing? And then we'll talk about what's going on here. So there's traditional index mutual funds or index funds, right? Vanguard fund or an iShares fund. And that's designed to cover a specific area of the market. So very simply put, you could say that you wanted a S&P 500 index fund. And the idea behind that is that it can be very low cost. I think Vanguard's lowest cost now is 0.07% in their annual expenses. And they own everything exactly the same as the S&P. So if you watch the S&P, S&P goes up, your money goes up. S&P goes down, your money goes down. And the idea behind it is, is that mutual fund managers don't often add value above what the index can do. And you're sometimes paying an extra cost in the form of an expense or a cost to the mutual fund manager to provide something of value that arguably he's not going to do on a regular basis, he or she on a regular basis. So index funds, that's what they're all about. Smart index funds are hilarious. (laughs) I'm laughing because it basically takes everything that I just said and says, well, that's all right, but we still think we're smarter. Our smart beta funds, I guess, is the preferred terminology. So if you believe that the index can't be beaten on a regular basis by a group of quote-unquote professionals, ergo, you should buy an index fund, right? Then how in the heck do you think you should beat the index by being a smart beta index fund, which is basically just a couple of people saying, you know what, we're going to focus on dividends because dividends are going to be awesome. And so they'll screen for higher dividends and they'll tweak that index and say, okay, it's an S&P 500 fund, but it's really only an S&P 500 fund maybe that only has high dividends over X percent of yield or something. And then it does well or it doesn't do well. And if it does well, then they tell you all about it. If it doesn't do well, it fades off into Neverland. This is a very classic example of survivorship bias, right? Like what wins when you look back and you say, oh, well, I should have had that. That was an awesome investment. Again, that has no bearing on the future. It's funny because this is a very big joke to me. 68% of advisors in this research that's part of this article, 68% of advisors who use exchange traded funds are already incorporating smart beta products into their client portfolios. However, scooting ahead in the article, for many financial advisors, the general notion of smart betas remained a fuzzy concept, which can largely be attributed to, this is in the article, can largely be attributed to an asset management industry that keeps pumping out products without conceding much in the way of uniformity. And I'm wondering, OG, if this is a case of advisors in some cases just knowing too much, like you're so close to the ground, you're like, oh, there's this new thing and I got to deliver some value. And this new thing does something that these other things don't do. So I got to have like the shiny bubble syndrome, right? Yeah. I have my own personal opinion on this. I think that it's because 
most diversified portfolios over the last four or five years have underperformed the U.S. stock market. Uh, and clients are a little antsy about that. And advisors are starting to dance. And advisors are starting to dance. They're starting to say, oh, wait, 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 Joe. I know I know that last year you only got 6%. The S&P was up 14. I know. I know. I got you a nice diversified portfolio, but that doesn't mean anything to you right now because you see 6 and then you see 14 and you're ticked off. But boy, let me tell you something. I got the new, I got new, thing. new thing. Not the new thing. You got the new, new thing. Yeah. I bet you that has a lot to do with it. I really do. Because I see that in our business. I see clients come in and say, ah, you know, I get it. Diversification looks great. Tell me again why I should be happy with it. But, you know, diversification is one of those things. You can't predict it in advance. So the performance of those different areas. But that's my guess. I really think that that and investment firms or product companies, let's put it that way, are seeing money going out of actively managed funds into ETFs. We've covered that a lot of how much inflows are going into ETFs versus actively traded funds. So they're saying, well, let's just have another active fund. We'll just call it an index fund, but it'll be an actively traded fund and we'll charge like it's an actively traded fund, but we'll call it something different. But it'll be kind of like an index fund. All right. It's really a mutual fund. Just with a different, I think what do they call that? A wolf in sheep's clothing. <laughs> our, our second headline comes to us from SoFi. The return on education, an ROED, they call it, ROE degree, right? What's your return on education? So looking at this article, obviously some jobs pay better than others. But to cut to the chase, not all degrees are created equal. It says highest paying job of all, MD, DDS is second, dentist is number two. DO, which is another type of doctor, is third. If you go into law, it's fourth. And if you have an MBA, it is fifth on their piece here. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes at stackingbenjamins.com. Undergraduate majors that have the biggest return on investment getting grad school, 58%. If you have so, a social sciences degree, that makes sense because a social sciences degree is a nice a little bit of everything. Yeah, it's a liberal arts thing and you really need to be more focused. But you will see a 58% return on your investment if you get an advanced degree. Somebody in the humanities, 52%, and somebody in fine arts will see a 50% degree. So if you're going into those three, the funny thing is, I mean, you're going to start off with, I don't mean to insult people. I have an English degree, so I know how you feel, guys. You know, these degrees don't pay very much. Although you could never tell by your writing and speaking ability. Yeah, maybe have English degree. Undergrad majors that gain the least return on investment by getting that, advanced degree. That was degree. the most? Those were the most. So 58% higher for social sciences. So if you just got a BA, didn't pay much, 58% rise if you got a grad degree, 52% for humanities, 50% for fine arts. Well, this isn't necessarily an increase on the cost of tuition or something like that. It's the increase compared to what your undergrad was compared to graduate right. earnings. Okay. Right, right, right. If you have a graduate degree, you can expect a pay increase of 58% over not having it. I see. Yeah. Ones that, those are the highest. Ones that had the least, these will be surprising. Mathematics was third least at 34%. If you can do math, apparently, with a BA, getting a Well, they start higher, math, though, right? I they mean, do math start undergrad higher. degrees are a little higher off the gate. That's yeah. right. And business, 28% raise if you get a graduate degree, if you go for your MBA. And then engineering is third at 24%. I think that's why they tell a lot of people, especially in business and engineering, OG, that if you're going to go for the graduate degree, work for a company that'll pay for it for you, right? Yep. Because I saw a thing in U.S. News World Reports a couple of weeks ago about the return on investment in schools. 
So it was, it listed all the uh, coverage of business schools or something like that. But it was, how hard is it to get into? How much does it cost? And then what do you get as a pay bump year one? And then what is your compensation year 10 or something? I really think that that should go into your decision making. Absolutely. It comes to going to school, going to a different school, picking a degree. You know, just because you don't like a certain area doesn't mean that you can't have a degree in business. If you say, well, I just really don't like finance or something. There's business degrees in computers. There's business degrees in humanities and human resources. So there's a lot of different variations on that. But I think when it comes to school, we should probably spend a little time on that. We had Lydia Frank on from Payscale, if you remember, maybe eight or nine months ago, talking about that, about some schools charging way too much and other schools being a great return on investment. And I haven't seen when their survey's coming out again, but we got to have her on because I think that's a good thing to track every year. I totally agree with you. And then in general, grad school pays off, but there are two majors where graduate school does not pay off. If you have an undergraduate in business and you go for a degree in the fine arts, you're going to go down a graduate degree in the fine arts, get a master's of fine arts. You're going to lose 11.4%. And I think that's just because business pays higher than pay. What'd you do before you started playing flute? (laughs) Oh, I was a CPA. (laughs) But you know, you replace money. There's anything wrong with being a flautist. No, you replace money with a lot more fun. Yes. Especially you can like charm snakes and stuff. And who doesn't like a snake charmer? Like uh, Pied Piper, right? <laughs> Walking through the town. Yeah, we got to let that one go. Them. Also, if you have an undergrad... a terrible nursery rhyme. Yeah, and an undergrad degree in engineering, of course, combined with an MFA, Master's of Fine Arts, is a negative 16.5%. So, SoFi's top five tips. Let's get to these so we can, we can get on to Emily Guy Birkin talking about retirement. Number one, before applying to graduate school, don't assume you need a graduate degree to advance in your field. I think that's a huge one, OG. Yeah, big time. Number two, undergraduate degrees in humanities benefit the most from graduate programs when measured by an increase in lifetime earnings. Number three, undergraduate degrees in applied math, computer science, and engineering increase the probability of securing employment, but may not give you as high a bump in salary. And the JD outperforms the MBA degree in lifetime earnings as well as expected increase in compensation. And number five, if you're thinking about following your artistic bliss, Think twice before taking out loans for your MFA. There's nothing wrong with a master's of fine art, but taking out loans for an MFA, the big thing this proved was you're going to pay a lot. And in terms of money to get back that money, you're not going to earn very much. Choose your own adventure is one thing. Choosing your own retirement. That's a big fat adventure, OG. I would love the idea to choose my own retirement. Isn't that fantastic? I choose not to retire right now. That's funny that you say that because (laughs) this idea idea of retirement has changed dramatically, isn't it? Especially since I even began practicing. I mean, especially in Detroit, it was a 30 and out atmosphere when I first started. And now this idea of 30 what and out, what does that mean? Do people even say that? We're seeing people that are retiring early with the intent to go back to work. Right. Like taking like a sabbatical at age 50 and saying, I'm taking the next five years off. And in five years from now, I'll go into consulting or I'm going to retire from my job right now and do a consulting type gig or something. Emily Guy Birkin has written the best book on retirement planning. And you know why it's the best, OG? Because your name 
name's on the front cover of it. Because it's all small font. My name's on the front. It should have been bigger, frankly. I mean, it's there on the top, and you can That's see what she it. Said. But, <laughs> nice. But here comes one of my favorite people. I'm going to let that go. She was on the show with her last book, The Five Years Before You Retire. Now she's back. Choose your own retirement. Find the right path to your new adventure. Here she comes, Emily Guy Birkin, down to the basement. And Emily Guy Birkin joins us in the basement. Welcome, man. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be in the basement. You feel a little creepy just saying that? I'm happy to be in the basement. <laughs> yeah, it does sound like something a serial killer would say. <laughs> <laughs> or that you'd say to a serial killer. Oh, no, I'm happy to be here. Right. The moments later. I promise we are not. You've been down here before. It's fine. I have. Yes. Yes. And mom's very nice to you because she loves your books. So let me ask you this before we get started, because we're having a rare top five without OG today where you're going to be doing the top five. Your book is called Choose Your Retirement, Find the Right Path to Your New Adventure. How is this? You know, your last book was the five years before you retire. How is this complementary to that book? Where does that book leave off and this book picks up? Well, the five years before you retire really focused on kind of the specifics of people who are already pretty much decided on uh, the fact that they were going to be retiring in a few years and that, uh, you know, things were kind of heating up at that point. So Choose Your Retirement kind of takes a, a step back and looks at the idea of retiring as a whole. And so it's going to be very helpful, yes, for people who are closer to retirement, like my audience of uh, five years before you retire, but it's also going to be helpful for younger people. I mean, someone who is in their 20s, just starting a professional career, can find a lot of really good information and Choose Your Retirement, whereas five years before you retire might be just a little bit too far off to be helpful to a young professional. That's funny because when I was reading through the book, you start off by saying that a lot of financial professionals just scare the crap out of you. Mm -hmm. How is that? Because I used to be a financial professional. <laughs> and although I look scary, I don't think I bite. What is it that bothers people and makes them not do anything or freezes them, I guess? Well, there's the sense that if you get it wrong, you're going to screw up your entire life. <laughs> um, and it doesn't help that I feel like the financial industry, it's in its in financial industry's best interest to keep finances opaque and kind of difficult to understand because then you need them. And so people have this tendency to feel like, oh my gosh, I have to make the right decision. And that is enough to just shut your brain down. And then it's also, it's stuff that's so far away that you don't really want to think about your own mortality or the fact that you might need a knee replacement someday or any of those types of issues. Right. I have kids or I have the softball league or I've got the next raise at work. Retirement, mm -hmm. I can deal with that crap later. Yeah, exactly. So people just, they don't like thinking about the future in general when it's something like, you know, someday I'll be old kind of future. And uh, money tends to be very intimidating. So people need to kind of step away from the intimidation factor and like get a real clear sense of money and retirement and all of that without the finger wagging that you also get a lot of from financial planners. People are always like, well, you should have started earlier. I can't help you. Yeah, like what's the most helpful response? <laughs> right. Like, what are you going to do about it now? Yeah. Like, well, if you'd made a better choice when you're 25, you be, wouldn't be in this situation. Okay, thanks. Let's deal with things as they are rather than as they could be. Yeah. No, that's great. So now it's just clearing a path between where you are today and where you want to be. You spend a lot of time talking about dreaming big. And I love that because as a financial advisor, I thought that people spend a lot of time, people that do take it seriously, spend a lot of time on the numbers. And those are the people that go, oh, I don't need to do all that foo-foo stuff. But really, I mean, if I'm taking your book as an example, doing that foo-foo stuff, that dreaming is really the heart of getting where you want to go. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because if you just focus on the numbers, you might be able to afford this great retirement, but it might not be the exact retirement you want. You know, if you think about it, people dream about stuff like, I don't know, let's say buying a boat after they retire. Now, I tend to be a very pragmatic person. And so you talk to me about buying a boat and I'm thinking like, all right, where am I going to store it? What am I going to do if it leaks? How am I going to maintain it? And so, but that's just, that's how I'm wired. A lot of people, they're just thinking like, wind in my hair out on the ocean, it'll be wonderful, but not thinking about that pragmatic stuff. So if you spend the time to really think about what is it that I love about the idea of a boat? Well, it's the idea of, you know, getting out on the water. Well, could I get that without owning a boat myself? Sure. That'll actually cost a lot less. Let's go through just one little piece of the book. We'll let people buy the book to get the rest, but we'll give them oh, a little yes. we'll give them a little taste of it because I thought, you know, people love our top 5 episodes and when I saw that you have 8 retirement myths, I took what I thought were the top 5 and I thought maybe mm-hmm. we should go through these. How does that sound? Sure, absolutely. All right, let's do this. This is going to be fun. Number 5. The fifth biggest myth is that you need 1 million dollars to retire. What I feel like Austin Powers, 1 million dollars. <laughs> Exactly. So is it more or less than that? Or is the answer, it depends. (laughs) Yes. Yes. There's two sides to this problem, this being the myth. On the one side, there's the Austin Powers problem. One million dollars does not buy what you think it does. (laughs) You know, it might sound big, but it's not really a whole heck of a lot of money. And so for people who are at higher income and they might think like, oh, I can hit a million dollars and be good. And that's not necessarily going to cover what they want to do. The other side of the problem is the fact that 95% of American households do not have and will not have a million dollars in assets. And so saying you need a million dollars to retire makes retirement sound out of reach for the people who have much lower incomes. And so, and it is possible to have a satisfying retirement with less than that. So the problem with a million dollars is it's an arbitrary number. Uh, It's this nice big round number that you look at and you think, yeah, that sounds about right. But it all depends on your circumstances. Retirement has to be an individualized journey. Number four. Number four, you've got withdrawing 4% will maintain your principal. So you got this big retirement nest egg. Everybody's heard this. I think Peter Lynch was the first one at Fidelity was the first one to say this. There was the, his 4% rule, right? If you withdraw 4%, your money will last your lifetime. Not true? That is not true necessarily. Now, it was true for many years, and then 2008 happened, and it was not true that year. And that's particularly tough. 4% withdrawal rule is really tough for the people who are planning on retiring right around 2007, 2008, or a little bit before, a little bit after, because if you would do what you had planned and live on what you had planned, so the, the common thing is if you have a million-dollar nest egg, you can take $40,000 each year, which seems like a reasonable amount of money to live on, and that protects your principal. Say you had a million dollars, you lost 35% of it in 2008. So you're down to $650,000. Taking 40,000 that year is really going to make things problematic. So rather than withdrawing 4% of your principal, I really advocate using the bucket method where you have three separate income buckets based on the time frame that you're planning on using them. If uh, the zombie apocalypse hits right when you retire and the, you know, things tank. Could happen. It could happen. You never know. Then you still have some time to ride out that volatility. You know, you've got 10 years for, you know, the zombies to all die off and, you know, things to bounce back. Do zombies die off? (laughs) Eventually they got to decompose, is my thinking. Something's got to happen to them. (laughs) But I've seen enough movies that I don't think that's the case. (laughs) 
Well, okay, they'll find the cure for zombieism. (laughs) Planning your money that way, your income that way, really allows you to ride out any market volatility. Whereas the 4% rule is, it does not. There's no plan for what happens if there's an apocalypse. (laughs) The thing that always bothered me about the 4% rule was that it didn't address your budget needs. I mean, I'm taking 4% out just because that's my rule. But what if I don't spend that money? Now I ripped it out of the IRA or the 401k or wherever it's, you know, whatever my tax shelter of choice is. Mm-hmm. I've taken it out of there. And now if I don't spend it, I put it back in investments outside of the tax shelter, which means I get taxed and then it's going to get taxed again. The, the gains and dividends, that kind of thing will get taxed again. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. But what you're proposing also, though, Emily, means a little more work, which yes. means you have to kind of look at how much money you're going to spend mm-hmm. during those years. Yes. Well, and the thing is, I really do believe money requires work. That's so annoying. I know it's frustrating, but I liken it a little bit to like a romantic relationship. You can't expect to be in a relationship with money and everything to be fine and perfect without you making some compromises on your part. You know, money can't take care of you that way. Just like Prince Charming can't take care of you that way. There needs to be some give and take. So, you know, just as you put a little effort into your marriage, you should put a little effort into your money. (laughs) That is such a horrible message. (laughs) I like that we'll just live happily ever after and I don't have to do anything message. Way, way better. Oh, well, that is is, (laughs) somebody's got to be the voice of reality, I guess. Number three. The number three myth is Social Security is based on the last 10 years with your employer. Sure it is. Nope, not at all. Your social security benefits are based on your highest 35 earning years. So the 10-year myth, that comes from the fact that you need to have basically at least 10 years of work to be eligible for social security. So what it's actually based on is whatever 35 years worth of work is the highest, your, the most money that you've made. If you do not have 35 years of years worth of work, and this is the really tough thing, they put zeros in to average it out. Oh. So if yeah, if you've only worked 25 years, you get 10 years of zeros, and then they that's how they average out what your income is and figure out your benefits. So for people who spend a lot of their time self-employed and have years where they have no Social Security because they take it all, all of their income as a distribution instead of paying mm-hmm. FICA tax on it, those people really are getting hammered. Yeah, and that's something that I think is going to be a bigger and bigger issue as, as the world becomes more self-employment focused. For right now, it's just kind of a sucks-to-be-you moment. <laughs> So, so how do you get the true number? I'm imagining you just go to the Social Security Administration. Yes. The calculation for it, as you can imagine, is mind boggling. So they've got calculators and there's also something called a, a My Social Security account, which will do all of this information for you. And as long as you have a Social Security number, you can sign up for a My Social Security account and get all the information that you could need, whether you're still employed or retired or anything. It'll give you an idea of what you can expect from your benefits. And we had Devin Carroll on recently, who is a Social Security expert. And I was just blown away by how complicated Social Security really oh, is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's really complicated. I'm currently at work on a book on Social Security, and there have been a couple of times where I had to pick my eyeballs up off the floor because they just rolled out of my head. But it's such an exciting topic, too. It is actually more interesting than I anticipated. There there are, um, and again, but I am a money nerd. So, I mean, take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, but I think we're all money nerds. We find money we didn't know what we had, right? And there's so many people that miss out on money. And the scary thing is people at Social Security Administration don't even know the rules. 
Yes, that's what's really surprising. There's a lot of, I hear a lot of stories of people getting told completely wrong information by Social Security Administration personnel. So painful. <laughs> it is. Absolutely. Number two. Number two has to do with healthcare. Yes, the number two myth is Medicare is going to take care of you. Sure it will, girlfriend. Oh, I'm afraid not. <laughs> Fidelity every year does a calculation of how much a 65-year-old couple retiring that year will spend in uh, health care. And for 2014, which is the most recent numbers they have, that was $220,000. What's really frustrating is that the 65-year-old couple is eligible for Medicare. So in addition to Medicare, you can expect to spend $220,000. Wow. Now I, now, I will say that several different researchers have not debunked that so much, but said that that's an average and that's something you got to look at, you know, your own personal situation. And it also does not necessarily take into account the fact that people might graduate to different levels of care needed. So for example, you might have a stroke, need some care go to the hospital, but then be able to come home and, you know, be living independently for a while, that sort of thing. Whereas I think the fidelity numbers assume that uh, once things go downhill, they, they really go bad. But it is important to know, we have this tendency to think, you know, well, Medicare covers everything and it really doesn't. Medicare Part A is just hop hospital insurance. It does not care cover staying in a nursing home and it does not cover doctor's appointments. Medicare Part B it does cover doctor's appointments, a lot of preventive care, but you have to pay for it. There's a, a monthly premium of, and forgive me, I'm going to get this wrong, but it's about $105 per month. And then, but it doesn't have prescription drugs. <laughs> so, so that's where Medicare Part D comes in. And then there's Medicare Part C, which is also a possibility. And it gets very, very confusing very quickly. When I was first researching Medicare, I would rage to my husband when he came home. I was like, they're making people's nanos figure this out. <laughs> this makes me angry. It's like alphabet soup. Yes. Yeah, there's so much. And it's it's very easy to uh, to get the less than ideal product for yourself and not necessarily understand what's going on. And, you know, if you add in health problems, you know, having a senior who's suffering from health problems, trying to figure this out, it, just, it needs to be reformed, quite frankly. All right. I've got goosebumps. We're already at number one, Emily. How exciting. Can you believe this? You ready? Oh, yes. All right. Here we go. Number one. The number one myth is you will need 80% of your salary in retirement. Now, for our listeners to know, Emily didn't list these in top five. I did. <laughs> and I'll tell you why I put this one as number one of all the myths that are in your book, because this crap I heard over and over and <laughs> over and, and I still hear it constantly. 80%. What's that all about? Well, the problem with 80% is that it is based on what your income is rather than what your spending is. So 80% of what your income is doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what your spending is. You Zero. Yeah. So you could need actually 150% of your salary in retirement because of what you're planning on spending. Or if you, you know, just want to sit on your couch and eat Cheetos and watch uh, daytime TV, you could need 13% of, of your salary. That's my dream, by the way. <laughs> You know, it's it's a good dream. It's a you know, you get to sit in your basement. So how great is that? <laughs> Close the door, can't hear mom yelling, I'm good. <laughs> exactly. So it's just frustrating because people tout this as like the a rule from handed down from on high 
when it's just a rule of thumb that doesn't have anything to do with anything, really. You know, why would you assume that you can live on 80% of what your income is right now? Is that anything related to what your your spending is? And so that's the important thing. And this is part of, you know, where you got to take care of your money. You got to know how much you spend. I see this in 401k guides, like how to choose the right amount to put in your 401k. Well, take 80% of what you make now. And that's what your goal. No, what are you talking about? We've got big, huge organizations running 401ks. That reminds me of, uh, it's the jewelry companies that decided that two months salary is how much a, a ring is worth. Right. That's scary. So the book's called Choose Your Retirement, Find the Right Path to Your New Adventure. And actually, let's talk a little bit about how this is, because I like the way that the book is outlined. The first part is clearing your path toward retirement and really is about, well, it starts off with your money psychology, but it also is about demystifying your investments. What's part one all about? So I wanted to kind of take that that intimidation out of money that, that we were talking about. And so the first thing you got to do is you got to know how you view money. Now, we tend to think of money as just dollars and cents. You know, the, the economists talked about homo economicus who, you know, makes these rational decisions. But, but if you've that, ever met anyone, you know, that's not true. I was going to say that person doesn't live among us. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you've got to, and not everyone has the same money hangups and money issues and money thinking and all of that. So it's important to figure out where you're coming from with money and uh, what are the things that are going to trip you up? What are the things that you're going to be good at? So that was the first part. Then I also wanted to kind of look at the psychology of investing because again, investing at its base is simple. It's the problem is a lot of people throw a lot of noise in there. Again, it's the financial industry. It's in its best interest to make investing kind of complicated and scary. And it's Even also financial media, by the way, because financial media gets paid on commercials, CNBC, Fox business, you know, commercials. So if we can make it really complicated so we can fill up the 24 hour schedule, that's better for us. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I was just thinking about even pop culture uh, talking about investing. They make it sound like investing is about timing the market, but that's gambling. You know? <laughs> and so um, I wanted to um, give some ideas of what psychological problems people have when it comes to investing, how to overcome them and how to get to that simple aspect of investing. And I also wanted to help people understand what are some of the barriers that are in between themselves and having a robust retirement fund, because a lot of times those barriers are either in your mind or they're really simple. And so you just have to identify them. You spend a lot of your time talking about dreaming big, which is what I like. I mean, you've got, what, 60 pages on what we just talked about, then 40 pages on the subject that we just talked about. We went over five of the myths, but you go through a lot of retirement myths. But then you spend a long time on, and really, it seems like the third part of this book is going to be different for everybody. Like, you, mm -hmm. like you're going to pick and choose your chapters, whether you want to live abroad, if you want to travel, if you want to retire early, if you want to change careers, you want to go back to school, you want to work part-time, you're going to do different things things. You're going to choose your own adventure. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So yeah, I wanted to give some of the specific details that are missing from a lot of retirement books for the different types of retirement dreams out there, because everyone's retirement is going to be different because you're following what you want to do. And so I identified 10 different things that people might want from retirement, including you know everything from moving closer to family, to retiring abroad, to retiring early, and all of those that you mentioned. And really looked into what the specific logistics you need to worry about for those things are. So 
you know, if you want to retire abroad, how easy is it? And that one was surprised me is how easy and inexpensive it can be. You know, I mean, they think maybe I'll retire to Ecuador. I don't know. Yeah. Guatemala. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and those are the sorts of things that you generally would have to find a specific retirement book. You know, there might be a retirement book on retiring abroad or a retirement book on retiring early or one on how to change careers, but you're not going to be able to find a general retirement book that will help steer you if you're not sure what you want to do, or that will give you some options and give you some ideas of what to expect from different paths that you might be interested in taking. So by putting it all together, people can, for one thing, kind of try on you know, different ideas like, oh, okay, this is something I might have to worry about. I don't know if I'd like that. This is something else that might be interesting that hadn't occurred to me. And it also kind of gives um, those logistical concerns that I don't feel like a lot of people get a chance to look at. Yeah. And in layman's terms too. Yes. By the way, getting back to the boat, you know, you've heard the joke about the two best days of a boat owner's life. The day they buy it and the day they sell it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. The, yeah. The, whole, the whole time you were talking about the boat earlier, I thought about that. This is why I will never own a boat. <laughs> oh, a sports car. <laughs> books available everywhere? It's available everywhere. Yes. It's on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. We'll have a link to it in our show notes also at stackingbenjamins.com. So last question, Emily, you've got somebody in an elevator for one minute. Don't you hate these questions? And you want to give them your one like overarching piece of retirement advice. What would it be? Know yourself. Figure out who you are, both in terms of uh, how you handle money and what you want from life. And if you do that and are true to yourself, you're going to have a life. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I've got to say, someday this new podcasting intro gig is going to help me stack enough Benjamins, I'll actually retire. And probably a wealthy man, too. Tom Bergeron, you watch out. No matter what, when I finally retire, and probably at the top of my game, I think I'll move to a state without income tax. Which brings me to today's trivia question. How many states in the U.S. have no income tax? And for those of you who think they know all the trivia... (laughs) Not naming any names here, Matt. Can you name them? I'll be back with the answer a little later. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words... Your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Well, if you're new to Stacky Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things. So I know what I'm talking about when it comes to Uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And uh, the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money. And it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, we're able to collaborate together. We can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated 
all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because... Well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey, trivia nerds. I think I'm going to break my brain here trying to stump the smarty pants in the group. Here was today's trivia question. How many states in the United States have no income tax? The answer is... Seven. And here they are, in alphabetical order for those of you with OCD. Alaska, Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming. If those aren't enough, and to avoid the onslaught of letters later, I'll also mention that New Hampshire and Tennessee only tax dividends and interest. Bam! Dropping the mic. Now I'm going to go have to cross-reference this list with another one I have bookmarked. The 12 states with the most eligible bachelorettes over 50 and see which of those states are on both lists. No taxes and more hot, sweet babes? Sign me up. Thanks a ton to Emily Guy Birkin for stopping by the basement. Oh, gee, it's funny. I know you had to go up and brush your teeth and couldn't be down there during the top five, but I think it's interesting that Emily Guy Birkin also talks about the bucket strategy and about how that's a strategy that when she talked to lots of professionals, that's what they used. The whole bucket strategy. Yeah. So uh, what I love is that I think we have, you know, heavyweight people on Mondays and Wednesday show and they disagree as the path that we need to follow in the future. Right. Right. What's the path that we follow? But those are very both educated ways to get at it much better than the I'm going to wait for my number or I'm going to wait for the DraftKings people to give me my money. So either one of those. We got some letters here. Doug brought down the mail and Erica wrote us a note on the Stacking Benjamins website. On the show notes for when we talked, OG, on the short stack about recasting your mortgage. And if you didn't hear that episode, we'll have a link in the show notes. But Erica says, we chose to mortgage our home with a local bank that offered recasting. We were interested in this as we purchased a home prior to selling our last home. We were able to take the equity from the sale of home A and used it to recast their mortgage on home B. So what they did, OG, was they got a mortgage for a big amount of money. And because they had a lot of money, they could put toward that mortgage for a fee of just $250. They were able to then just keep the mortgage going as is, just with lower payments. Love it. Much, much better than a full refi. Some individuals use a bridge loan for this type of process, Erica said, considering those have closing costs, recasting was advantageous. So great to hear that David Rubenstein's strategy worked for a listener. That's really cool. Our second note comes to us from Lee, and this was a direct message to us on our Stacking Benjamins Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Benjamins. Lee says his girlfriend and he have been having trouble with her getting some credit, OG, due to her low credit score. They're both 20 years old, so they're just starting out building credit. 
while he has about a 720 credit score, she's around a 630. He was wondering what way they could build her credit up for the future. They live in Michigan, and in Michigan, it says their credit score has a big effect on your car insurance rates. Thank you, Lee. Thanks for the question, Lee, and for listening from my old stomping grounds back there in Michigan. Cool. I think that the biggest thing that you can do when it comes to your credit score is just be educated on what the factors that go into a credit score are and then manipulate that data to your advantage. There's two huge ones. Yeah, two really big ones. The first one is payment history. So if you are paying a payment late, and I don't mean late like 10 days late, but at the 30-day mark, your credit cards, your mortgage, your car payment, those sorts of folks, they are going to report it as a 30-day late on your credit reports. And that has a really big impact on your credit score immediately. The weight of that falls off in six-month increments over two years. So if you have a 30-day late payment today, six months from now, it becomes less impactful to your score. 12 months, 18, and 24 months, the impact to it virtually goes away. Still there, it's going to be there for seven years, and credit card companies or people who lend money can still see that two years ago you were late on something, but it doesn't affect the score after a two-year period. The other thing that goes into your credit score, another big one, is utilization. How much of your available credit are you using right now? We see this a lot with younger people who have maybe a Macy's credit card or a, you know just something real simple, a Capital One Visa card that they got when they were in college, and it has a $1,000 limit on it and a $900 balance. To a credit card company or to the credit score people, frankly, you're using 90% of your available credit. You are so overextended at that point that you look worse than somebody who has $50,000 of credit against a $100,000 limit. And you say, well, that doesn't make sense. And my total exposure is only $900. But from a score standpoint, they look at the percentage of utilization. So those two things are really the biggest factor to change your credit score. You can't go out and get credit to replace bad credit score stuff. So it's hard. You got a low score. You can't just say, well, I'll just get new stuff and that'll erase the old stuff because you got to fix the low score first. A great place to get research on this and education on it is credit boards. It's a um, free message board website that you can find a ton of information on how to fix a credit report if it's broken, how to fix your credit score, fastest ways to improve that sort of thing. Uh, legal, of course, so, you know, this isn't kind of... That's what I was going to say, that just as an aside, oh, geez, the thing you want to stay away from are these people that have commercials telling you that they can fix your credit score. Yeah, I mean, now, statistically, a lot of people have errors in their credit reports. And if you think that the only reason that you have a low credit score is because of an error, you'd say, well, there's no way that I have any, I've never done anything bad. Right then there might be an error. You might have some identity theft issues or sure. some things that are reporting incorrectly. You'll find, if you go to creditboards.com, you'll find the biggest thing that you can do is order your credit reports and go through them with a fine-tooth comb and find out if there are any errors. And what's cool is you can also get the free one, which everybody's entitled to, because the free one doesn't include the credit score, but you already know your credit score, so you're not worried about that. You're worried about the line-by-line detail, and that's what the free one gives you. Yeah, I would not get a free credit report. No, no. You would. Is that what you just said? Yes. I said, you're not worried about the score because he already knows the score. So get the free credit report that'll tell you what the problems are on the... Yeah. No, I wouldn't get the free one. Why I would not? order Well, because they are not complete sometimes. Sometimes the ones that you get on 
Credit Karma or something like that. The ones that are. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the one that you're allowed that comes directly from Experian TransUnion and the one per year free one. Yes, which is annualcreditreport.com. Is it annualcreditreport or free? Annualcreditreport.com is where you can get your three free ones. Those would be acceptable. I would order those directly from the companies. Right. So do not go to annualcreditreport.com. That is the correct website, annualcreditreport.com. Yes, that's the right one. You want hard copies, not electronic, because hard copies are easier for you to mark up. You can see they make more sense. The electronic version is kind of a pain in the butt to go through. Read credit boards. They'll give you a ton of information on how to do that. Uh, You just got to spend some time and energy investing in it. But the biggest thing is lower your utilization to under 5%. If you got $1,000 credit, do not have a report. Do not have your statement end with you owing more than $50 on your card. And the other biggest thing is don't ever be late. Those two things in and of itself will raise your credit score hundreds of points. Excellent. Thanks for the note, Lee. And here is our next note from Will. Will says, hey, Joe, in the Steve Roberts interview, that was football and financial planning, OG. He said, one thing I wish you'd followed up on. He said that sometimes he suggests something other than a term policy for life insurance. He says, okay, I'm willing to have an open mind, but I'm racking my brain trying to think of literally any time when a whole life policy will be anything other than a crap sandwich of a deal. What am I missing? Would you not always be better off getting a term policy and taking the huge difference in policy premium and investing that in, say, an S&P 500 index fund? I wrote back to Willow G and I told him, this is the topic we talk about more than any. And I was sad that Will missed those episodes because this is going to get in the weeds a little bit. But let's start off with this. We agree, Will, between 95 and 97% of the time that a term life policy is definitely the way to go. However, there are not bad insurance policies. Now, insurance types, there may be bad insurance policies that have been put together poorly by companies, but whole life is not a bad type of insurance. Universal life is not a bad type of insurance. Variable universal life isn't a bad type of insurance. Variable second to die policies are not bad. There are bad salespeople using them in bad ways. So these policies were created for reasons. And the reason that most people get into trouble with those policies is they're using them for a reason that they're not intended for. As an example, you can't use a term life policy in place of a variable second to die and have anything happen except the wrong thing. Yeah. This is just like any financial tool. There's great uses for it and appropriate uses and bad uses. Yeah. A 95-year-old widow does not need to have a 20-year private placement oil drilling investment. <laughs> it's, you know, oil drilling investments are great for the right people at the right time, at the right point in time in their life. That being said, you know, insurance is one of those things that has been, for whatever reason, demonized by a couple of really high profile financial quote unquote professionals. Gurus. Yeah. Gurus are probably more like. And so a lot of people just jump on the bandwagon. You know, it's no different than politics. If all of a sudden your favorite politician says that insert thing here is bad, everybody says, well, you know, someone who's said it's bad. It's fair to have an open mind. I would say that in most cases, buy-term invest the difference. Or the biggest downside to that is that insurance expires at some point in time. Well, and the other downside is, which is humorous, is that nobody invests the difference. And that doesn't mean... Well... Yeah, we don't need to get in the behavior aspect right. of it because nobody ever does that <laughs> right. in real practice. But. I have met more broke professors telling me that you should invest the difference. Oh, really? How much have you invested? Well, uh, yeah, three ways. And I don't want to get too in the weeds here. But number one, I talked about a variable second to die policy. It's a way to fight estate taxes. That's obviously going to be used with high income 
people in an estate planning, not high income, high net worth people, sorry. Uh, well, it can also be used to have quite a gift. I yeah. mean, a second to die policy is very inexpensive from a cost standpoint. That's and uh, you can leverage a lot of dollars right. for charitable purposes, if that's your thing. People that had a lot, lot, lot of income coming in and needed places to stuff money. A low-cost variable universal life policy beats the pants off of an annuity as a tax shelter. Is way, way, way better. Can do much of the same things, many of the same things that a annuity does, but can do it way more efficiently. You just have to know. It gets convoluted, guys. You just got to know how that works. And once again, how many people listening to this show does that apply to? Not many. But it doesn't mean a VUL policy is a bad product. It means that the wrong person has it and some salesperson shoved it down their throat. And then third, my super risk averse clients wanted whole life coverage, even after I showed them the numbers. Like I totally agree with Will that that is a crap sandwich. I totally agree with it. There are far better things to do. And after I went through everything, they would still say, and I would say this is maybe one person just to give you the idea of how often this happened. One person about every two to three years So every 24 to 36 months, I'd have one client that it went this way. They didn't like the fact that 2% of term policies ever pay off. Hated that, right? Like you said, the policy's gone at some point. That freaked them out, OG. Didn't matter how much money they were going to have. I could show them projections of them being okay. Did not matter. We're willing to pay the money. Even in those times, in those very, very few times with a super risk averse client, we would use whole life because sleeping at night beat the pants off of not sleeping at all. So, and I know we're going to get letters. I know we're going to get letters about that letter. You said the whole life is good. What are you talking about, OG? Well, and to be clear, we didn't say that it's good. We said that permanent policies have a place. Oh, no, 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 no. I know what we said. We've just been doing this long enough to know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 we will still get some. All right. If you've got a note or some hate mail, send those to me, Joe. Send hate mail to... To Will, who brought up this question. Anyway, if you've got a question, we are about to have, at the end of next week, we're going to have our answers episode where we're going to go through a lot. We're going to get caught up. We're closing in. If you wrote us a letter after August 19th, we haven't gotten to it. If you wrote us a letter before August 19th and you haven't heard the answer, then I somehow missed it. So shoot me a note. But we're only about two months behind. That's it. But we're going to catch up quite a bit next Friday on the episode. No roundtable that day, just this. All right. Big lessons. I think I think my big lesson today when it comes to retirement planning, OG, that I'd like people to take home is in two parts. You know, Emily Guy Birkin went through five of her top retirement myths that people have. These myths are all over the place, right? That 4% of your income is going to do it or that, you know, Social Security, like we talked about there, or whatever the myth might be. Lots of myths and myths about life insurance, too. So don't follow the myths. Take the time. It's not that much more time to do the actual homework. People spend more time planning Disney vacations than they do their entire retirement. If you don't want to do it, hire somebody to do it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Amen. We are going to put a bow on this thing on Friday with the short stack. We've got CFP Brittany Castro coming down. Do I not get my big thing? Oh, I thought that was yours. I know I'm underwhelming most of the time, (laughs) but on occasion, I do have something. 
Wow, bring it on, man. My number one thing, it's my favorite part, is that smart beta funds are a joke. And if your advisor says, I've got this new thing, you should ask three questions. Number one, how long has it been around? How long have you been using it for your clients? And how much money do you have in it for your own portfolio? That's funny because it goes back to Bobby Monk's questions that people should ask their advisor when he was on last week talking about the Wall Street lie, right? That's fantastic. Good stuff. All right. As I was saying, let's put a big bow on this baby on Friday with a short stack. CFP Brittany Castro coming down to the basement and also frequent contributor Barbara Friedberg. Barbara has a brand new podcast, Young and Oldish Money. She and Bobby Lee talking together about money. Cool. Yeah. Bobby's a millennial. Barbara is not a millennial. And the two of them talk finance. So we'll have them on along with crazy man Greg McFarlane on Friday. Stacking more Benjamins and more retirement planning discussions. We'll see everybody then. This show is the property of the Free Financial Advisor LLC, copyright 2015. The show is edited by Josel Sihai and Isabella Bianca. Special thanks to author Emily Guy Birkin for appearing on today's show. You'll find her book and more from our awesome guests at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash store. You know, Joe, I really thought doing these credits completely naked would have been a lot more fun than it actually was. The people responsible for this show have been sacked. Welcome to the after show, the part of the show that doesn't exist. We refer to it sometimes as dessert. But even if you talk about dessert out in the open, which what happens in the after show should stay in the after show. But if you talk about it, we will deny, deny, deny. We know nothing about this part of the show. But we have not done this in a long, long time. We have some people, and it's mostly listeners that have been around for a long time, that use our Amazon links. I've got a list here of the most expensive things that were purchased. And this is usually most of the time technology related. Yep. Biggest thing was a computer. Somebody yep. bought a computer that uh, was an actual computer, but maybe the same person. As a matter of fact, somebody bought a computer and then returned it. So thanks for that. Really appreciate <laughs> getting our hopes up. Yeah, you could have left it there. Yeah, and you, uh, who cares if it worked for you? It was money in our pocket. In our pocket, yeah. Taken away uh, from So the biggest thing was the computer at uh, about $1,500. Wow. That's just, how much the computer costs, of course. And let me see if I can't find a couple of really, really interesting things. Lots of books. There's got to be some good books. Let's see. Somebody's studying for the SAT. Okay. Somebody's learn how to use QuickBooks. All right. Okay. And a Bible. It's nice. Lego books. Ooh, Richest Man in Babylon. That's a good book. Maybe we right. do that top five books. We'll have to talk yeah. about Richest Man in Babylon. E-Myth. There's another great one. Uh, we'd love the E-Myth. How to, how to grill with Weber's Way to Grill. Oh, 
That's making me hungry. You know what I just did? Speaking of grills, I just replaced a bunch of pieces of my gas grill. Like, yeah, you know, that's nice, isn't it? You have a Weber grill. I've got a charbroil grill. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's similar. Yeah. It cost Whatever. me 50 bucks and I'm completely rehabbing my grill. Yeah, the whole thing is, yep. yeah, I did that with ours after we moved. I took out all the lava rocks and all the burners and the little drip things and everything. And I just put all new stuff in there. Yeah. And um, much, yeah, much less expensive. Yo, yeah. oh, than buying a brand new one. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Somebody spent $14 on salad dressing, Italian salad. That's some good $14 salad dressing. That's yeah, it was like one of those packs. Oh, know? yeah. That's some good salad dressing, 14 bucks. Yeah. Bulk salad dressing. Does this say like salad dressing in big black letters on the pack? Uh, I didn't look at it yet. Let's see here. A lot of Kindle books, magazine subscription. Oh, here we go. Here's a music one. Billboard's greatest Christmas hits. Oh, it's getting to be that time of year. When you guys... 1935 to 1954. Oh, cool. Did they even have Christmas back then? <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't think we're going to find out who made that one. I'm I not... I'm okay, not that's a one-off person who bought, so like, like literally turned on their computer for the first time and figure out how to get to Amazon. I don't know when that fad Christmas started. When did that start? That's what I mean. That'll get us. Some Somebody help. bought a whole boatload of ink. Holy crow. $380 worth of printer ink. Wow. Well, you know what? That's how they get you. They give away the printer for free. <laughs> they totally do. Yeah. A bicycle? A twin bicycle? Haven't you thought that every time you went to get ink, seriously? This guy's like, the same person. Schwinn bicycle with a child mount seat. Or, you okay, know. good. Yeah. Birthday present for the kid, right? No, no. Men's bike with a child seat. <laughs> it's a present for a big kid. Oh, you know what I mean. Okay. Airbed. Somebody's having some friends over. A couple of bikes, actually. Maybe it's a whole family of bikers. How many times have... They're cyclists, by the way. Bikers are a whole different thing. Yeah, you know, the guys with the leather jackets. <laughs> How many airbeds have you had in your lifetime? I've had like, it really, we always have one, you know, for if people come over and we've got too many. So we blow that baby up and there's always a hole in it. There always is. Yeah. I just have a house actually. Oh, wow. How do you get that? Somebody buy a house on Amazon? Night. Not yet. Oh, here's an audio book. I'm going to see this one. The Husband's Secret. Oh, <laughs> Oh, oh! A couple of I survives. So I've got an I survived Hurricane Katrina, and I survived the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. I wonder if it's think, the same I person. Think, I don't think it's the same person. Might be two different people. I'm still wondering what the husband's secret is. Is it that he plays DraftKings? You know, it's. Have you seen that commercial that the wife's on the computer? She goes, "Who pulls this stuff up on the computer?" And he like, he like, kind of is in shame. He's like, "Uh." Uh, I accidentally clicked on some links. The kids weren't even home. And it's like a commercial for Lowe's or something. <laughs> like, what? Uh, yeah. uh, so, sorry. <laughs> you got one? You got a winner? I think so. I think these people might be together. I think the husband's secret also bought the intermittent lubricant and the Trojans. <laughs> nice. 36 count. That's ambitious. <laughs> they're gonna, they're gonna, it's, like, it's like a five-year supply. They're going to go bad. <laughs> Is there an expiration date on those? Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. 30, 36. That's, uh, you know, you turn speed, on, my friend. You turn on the audiobook, The Husband's Secret. You listen to it together over candlelight. Take the edible. Between those two things and the uh, 
steel meat marinade injector. <laughs> That's the same person too. I think so. It's all a part of the same game. <laughs> oh, that's great. All Quick, right. J- jump on Amazon real fast. I need an audio book, <laughs> box of Trojans, some lube, <laughs> and a need a We need it before the mood's gone. Oh, and a natural penis enlargement pill. Are you kidding me? And a male <clears throat> something enhancer. You got to be kidding me. You're kidding me. Nah, I'm looking at it right now. It was a uh, audio book, actually. It's kind of odd. It's an audio book about how to... Yeah, kind of... <laughs> All goes in the same thing. So adventure seeking, developing attention to detail, developing hard rock abs, and then developing be better, be better in, in bed, I guess. I'm trying to be somewhat PG. And then a uh, member enlargement. It's got to be subliminal tape, maybe? I think that. A 500 pack of rubber bands. I think all of that together. <laughs> Actually, I think that might be the secret to the uh, enlargement. Stackinvestments.com forward slash Amazon. And if you're that person... Who bought the husband's secret and the meat stick and the Trojans? Meat stick? What was it? The meat injector. A meat injector, yeah. A beef injector. Let's see who that is. I don't think we're going to get anything. Uh, We'll see, man. You never know. I didn't know about some of the other things we've had either. We'll see. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.